Um, this is our new series, huh? Are you excited? I'm excited. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, we are going to be talking through the Lord's Prayer over the next, I think it's nine weeks. Um, we'll be taking our time slowly through this. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So here's what I want to do. I've uh, way more than I can say uh, in, in one message, but here's what I'm going to try and do. One, talk a little bit, uh, real briefly, about the nature of prayer and about what is prayer in general. Two, talk about this specific prayer, especially in its context, where it shows up in the Gospels, in, in these little mini biographies of the life of Jesus. Why, why, does, wh- why does Jesus teach this specific prayer? And then I want to do kind of a flyover of the prayer itself and just give some kind of opening thoughts about, um, about some themes, some, some broad themes here. So what is prayer? I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear that. Maybe you're someone who's been around Christian faith for a long time, and you have a certain image of prayer, of the role of prayer in your life, uh, or maybe, maybe you have some guilt around what the role of life should be that, that it doesn't have in your life. Maybe you're not a particularly uh, religious person, haven't been around stuff, and so prayer might strike you as a little weird, people just kind of sitting in a room, talking into the sky, hoping some genie out there answers us, right? What we see in the scriptures, and I'm going to set this in the broadest context that I possibly can, is that what we as Christians believe is that there is a God who has created all things and made human beings with a very specific purpose. In fact, this is, I know, what well kids are talking about this morning, is the purpose for which God created human beings. And what God created human beings for is to be image bearers, to, to bear his image in the world. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear that, that, that humans are made in the image of God. This is something that's talked about in culture, even outside of Christian context. What that actually means biblically is that people are uniquely the ones who are made to represent God in the world in, in actual personal relationship with him. That to be an image bearer of God is to be one who is to, to be and to do who God would be and what God would do if he were physically present in the world. This is what we see on the first pages of the scriptures, that that is the unique calling of humanity. And within that relationship, there is this necessary dynamic where, uh, where to be and to do who God is, we must be in relationship with him. We must know God. And ultimately, because God is creator and we are creature, we must be submitted to God. We must obey God. We must be the ones who are taking our cues from God rather than the other way around as the primary dynamic in that relationship. And yet, woven into that, because it is a relationship, is while there is this difference, while there is a superiority of God, there is meant to be genuine partnership. That within that task, God says, go out in the world, use the creativity that I've put in you. Use the, the gifts that I've given you. Use the raw materials of creation that I've put in front of you and participate with me. Join with me in making something of this world. Be my co-creators, as it were. And so you can see how within that, conversation would be a necessary part of that relationship. Sadly, the biblical story is counter to that purpose that was originally given to us by God, by our creator. Humanity decided instead of submitting to God and being who God would be, doing what God would do if he were physically present in the world, 
we wanted to run our own show. And each of us, in turn, makes this choice to say, I don't want to live submitted to God's ways. I want to choose how I want to live. I want to be the ultimate decision maker in my own life. And what we see in the scriptures is that that decision is ultimately the cause of all of the brokenness, all of the damage, all of the the carnage that we see around us, and ultimately of even physical death itself, because that central purpose is broken from us. And instead of moving toward this co-creating of life, this participation in the furtherance of blessing to the ends of the earth, we ourselves are complicit and actually become a curse in and to this world. What's amazing in the biblical story is that the story doesn't end there. that God actually pursues us in spite of our rebellion. And, and by no, <laughs> what's amazing in this story, is by absolutely no choice of humanity's own, by no um, mutual decision to try and pursue reconciliation. It's not as though God goes to his corner and we go to our corner and humanity kind of says, you know, that was pretty messed up of us. We should probably get back to the negotiating table with God. And God goes over here and goes, oh man, I need some time to cool off, but I guess maybe I'd be willing if... No, no, no. It's not a 50-50 agreement to come back to the table. God, 100% out of his grace, out of his love, out of his abounding mercy toward us, says, I'm going to pursue them anyway, actually decides to put himself back in relationship with rebellious humanity to our utter shock, to humanity's utter shock. To this day, it it is seeming an irrational act That only makes sense when you understand the character and mercy and grace of God that he would come and continue to pursue relationship first through one person, this man Abraham, then a single nation Israel. He covenants himself, this beautiful beautiful biblical word for relationship, deep relationship, deep binding of oneself to another. And that's the context within which prayer bursts forth in the biblical story. In fact, I was saying this this morning, even thinking about praying before this gathering with our team is when prayer kind of comes onto the stage of the biblical story, so often what we see the role being is that it is God and humanity arguing with one another. That uh, some of you, and, and you don't need to know this, but some of you will remember the story of Abraham arguing with God over the, the, the destiny of one specific city. And they're going back and forth, and there's this dynamic interplay. Some of you will remember Moses doing something very similar for the entire nation that he's representing, arguing with God, going back and forth. This is something that we watch King David do throughout the Psalms, arguing with God, saying, God, how can it be this way? What they are embracing is two things when we see that. And this is, this is common throughout the biblical picture of prayer, is that there's two things that are taken utterly seriously in the life of prayer. One is the complete and total sovereignty of God, that he is the one who is ultimately in charge and therefore is the only one capable of actually changing things externally and internally within us. That the primary dynamic of prayer is humanity returning to our ultimate need, which is relationship with God, and then properly aligning ourselves in that relationship as submitted to him as calling forth from the one who can actually do something about the brokenness of this, who is committed to doing something about this world. So that's taken utterly seriously, the sovereignty of God. And yet, what's also taken seriously is the fact that God has made us participants in that, partners 
in what he is doing in the world and therefore wants to hear from us, wants to know our hearts, wants us to express ourselves. And in fact, and this might sound heretical to some of you, in fact, the scriptures are audacious enough to say that there are times where God changes his mind, whatever that means, fit that in your theology, in response to what humanity comes and says, God, it's got to be this way. And as the story ultimately finds its climax in the one who comes and actually offers salvation, the one who is perfectly who God is in this world, who is perfectly uh, a representative, who, who is the image of God, as the New Testament says, the perfect image of God, who does exactly what God would do if here in the world, fulfilling the will of God in its totality. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about God incarnate who comes. Guess what's at the heart of the ministry of Jesus? Prayer. A lot of us miss this. These crucial moments in the life of Jesus, we actually see him going before the Father and doing this incredible um, gift, privilege that we've been given as humanity. As, as the perfect human being, we ought not be surprised that at the heart of everything Jesus does is relationship with God, and at the heart of that relationship is prayer. And so, so we see Jesus calling out to God, asking him for wisdom, saying things like, when I go to God in prayer, I'm asking God, what should I do? Because I only want to do what the Father tells me to do. So he's listening, he's posturing himself under God. He's, he's, he's trying to find wisdom from him. But then there's other moments where we see him taking seriously, God, I'm a participant in this. I'm your partner in this. So we see Jesus arguing with God. This is the Garden of Gethsemane as the height of that. Where he's saying, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way that this could go down? If there is, let this particular way that you're saying it needs to go down, let it pass from me. But how does he end that prayer? He ends that prayer as the ultimate embodiment of what it means to be human, the ultimate embodiment of what it means to be an image bearer. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And so in Jesus, we, we see prayer at its, at its ultimate, uh, the, 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 the prayer par excellence is what Jesus is. This is what prayer is. And so there are these really crucial moments in the life of Jesus where, uh, where, where this prayer, this specific prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as it's called, and it's called the Lord's Prayer in church history primarily because it's, it's, it's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. It's, it's, his, it's from his own mouth. Uh, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, which most scholars agree it's probably not a one-time event that someone sat down and transcribed. This is almost certainly a composite of, of the teachings that Jesus regularly did when, when he was among a crowd. And so this is part of the uh, kind of anthology, the, the greatest hits, the compendium of Jesus's core and central teachings, literally right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Any way that, that, you, uh, that you kind of diagram it out, any way that you try and figure out the structure, the Lord's Prayer always ends up smack in the middle of it. And we'll, and we'll talk about uh, its, its placement there and what comes immediately before and after it. The other place where the Lord's Prayer shows up is in the Gospel of Luke. By the way, that's Matthew 6, 9 to 13. That's where we're going to primarily be. 
Um, so, so kind of put a book, bookmark there, but then also go over to Luke 11. Luke 11 is the other place where this shows up. Come with me there. I want to read the section just before it. So if you're on your phone, scroll up a little bit. Uh, what's, what's the story just before what you have labeled there as the Lord's Prayer? What's it say? Yeah. Martha and Mary. Thank you. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, and then he teaches them the Lord's prayer. Just talk about that scene just, just prior. So Mary and Martha, fairly famous story. You have uh, Mary, who's at the feet of Jesus, sitting, learning, being with Jesus, communing with Jesus, spending time with Jesus. Martha, who wants everything to be just right in her home, who's serving everyone. And she comes and she says, Jesus, Mary is slacking. Mary's not carrying her weight. Tell her to come help me. And he says, no, no, no. If there's someone who needs to be sort of corrected here and told what's most important in this moment, it's you. Martha. Relationship with me is always primary to serving me. Being with me is always primary to doing things for me. Come and be with me. Commune with me. That's what he's saying. Whenever I read this story, I just think of a friend of mine when I was in seminary who, um, he wasn't the hardest worker, um, and he always wanted us to hang out. He always wanted everybody to go out, and you know, seminary's grad school. It's like fairly serious. It takes a lot of work. And anytime any of us would refuse to go and hang out with him, he'd be like, Martha, Martha. I think about that like every single time that I read this. Um, and, uh, and of course, the argument is sort of skewed because when you're in grad school and seminary, you're actually studying the Bible, but whatever. Um, but I think about that every time, right? Like, and, and maybe that's helpful to you to say that's what Jesus is saying. Is he saying, look, like, that what you're doing is important, but it's not, it's not the first thing. It's not the most important thing. Being with me, communing with me. Most scholars would agree, it, it just doesn't seem accidental that that story would come just before the central, I, I mean, the, the church has always seen the Lord's Prayer as such an important part of Jesus' life and teaching. And so it comes just before that. And then we see that Jesus himself goes to pray, and then a disciple comes to him and says, hey, teach us how to pray. In other words, teach us how to do the thing that you just said Martha needs to prioritize, that you just commended Mary for doing. How do we do that? How do we be with God? How do we have a relationship with God? This is the only thing, this is like fascinating. This is the only thing that the disciples specifically asked Jesus how to do. Isn't that weird? Right, like you're, you're hanging out with Jesus and he's casually walking on water and like healing everybody out here and uh, multiplying loaves and fish. And we never get the sense that his disciples go like, would you show me how to do that? That looked pretty dope. Like, 
Can you, or they never even ask him, like, how do you preach so well? How do you do that? How do you get in front of a, a group of people? The only thing that we're ever, and it doesn't mean that they never asked him, but there is something remarkable about the fact that the gospel writers, the only time that they point out that they go, wait, Jesus, you got to teach us how to do that thing you just did, is when he prays. And I love what New Testament scholar Daryl Johnson says about this. He says, it's almost certainly the case that they ask him to pray because they realize all of those other things, his miracles, his teaching, his boldness, his counseling of others, his compassion for others, is actually based upon the nearness and intimacy of his relationship with his father. And so they rightly perceive, or at least the gospel writers rightly perceive in the way that they decide to tell this story, that if you get this right, a whole lot else flows from it. That if you get the life of prayer and relationship and communion with Jesus right, a whole lot goes right along with it. And this is one of the primary reasons why I feel just really compelled for us to be in this at this time. Is I think that we've been in, or I've said it a thousand times uh, over the last number of weeks, is we've been in a really hard season. It's done a lot of damage and it's had significant impact in us personally and corporately as a people. And I think that in those times, what we see the people of God doing again and again is instead of scrambling after a thousand other ways to pick up the pieces, the church returns to first things and says, this is a moment where we need God more than anything else. And we might be tempted to say, we need this and we need this, and we need this circumstantially, and we need this to go back to normal, and we need this in our job, and all of that. No, no, no. What we need is the presence and nearness of God first and foremost. Seek first the kingdom of God, as Jesus himself said, and all these other things will be bonus to you. They'll be added to you. And so this is a season where I want to call us individually and as a people. This is what we're going to talk about in all of your discipleship course. No matter what you're taking, I'm telling you, it's headed toward communion with Jesus, to take seriously that we are so often a prayerless people, that we are so often an anxious people, a fearful people, a weary people, and that those two things are deeply connected. Those two states of being are deeply connected. And so what would it look like for Jacob's well for you to become a more prayerful person? Some of you are. Some of you have beautiful lives of prayer, and we're going to call upon you to teach us in that to model that for us, to be unashamed, to say, look, this is a part of, right? Like if they could ask Jesus, teach us how to do that, you should be willing to say, yeah, I can teach you how to do that. We're going to try and do that together as a church. What's so interesting is what follows this prayer. I will read the prayer eventually. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. I'm in Luke 11, starting at verse 5. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. This is a weird story, by the way. And I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door is shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is like a weird story. Someone comes to your house, uh, unexpected, in the middle of the night, and they need bread, um, as one does. And... Uh, you go to your neighbor's house and you knock on the door even though your neighbor's asleep and you're like, I need bread. And your neighbor's like, go away, I'm asleep. And then you just keep banging. And Jesus is like, prayer's kind of like that. It's like, what? Um, and I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. All that Jesus is talking about here is he's saying, look, there is the need for persistence in prayer. 
that the, nat- that the nature of prayer has foundational to it, that insofar as we persevere in prayer, we persevere in faith. That it takes a lot of faith to keep going back to God. Because one of the lessons, the hard lessons, but the necessary lessons we learn in prayer is that God is not a genie. God is not one who, who you just rub him the right way and he gives you whatever you want, right? Like that's not the nature of what... And the human machine is so built to believe that if I'm going to do a thing, a sacrificial thing, a hard thing like prayer, I better get something out of it. And we define what the something out of it is. And Jesus is saying that's so often where the lack of persistence and perseverance in prayer comes from. So we believe if I do it the right way, God's got to respond by giving me what I've defined as the good. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I think Jesus is being funny. Because it's like, my kids don't come to me. They're like, can I have a fish and an egg? Right? Like, I don't know what's going on here. And then like the scorpion just seems like a lot. It seems like, okay, Jesus. If you then who are evil, <laughs> which I just love that. It's like, you think Jesus is a soft teddy bear. He's just out here like, if y'all are who are evil, I mean, we can just say that blanket statement. I'm not caveating that or apologizing to anyone. Um, can give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying here is that persistence is needed in prayer. Also, humility is needed in prayer. We need to realize that we don't always know what's best. Pastor in New York City, Tim Keller puts it, is we would never be frustrated in prayer if we knew what was truly good for us. And yet that's, that's the trial of prayer, is that so often cosmically, ultimately, we don't know what's best for us. Remember, uh, Dean Mackey saying once that it, it's easy to, to see the contrast here of, you know, if your kid wants, wants food, if a kid wants fish or an egg, you're, you're not going to give him a stone or a scorpion. But so often what we don't realize is that we're actually the kids asking for scorpions and stones without realizing it. And what God actually gives us is what we need. That takes some humility. That takes some persistence to get there in prayer. And yet, as the prayer itself reminds us, the one that we are addressing is our good and perfect heavenly Father, who knows exactly what we need, who is utterly and completely for us. And therefore, we can persevere. He's not a bad neighbor, asleep, right? Like both of these images, I do think, functionally, are often how we think of God. He's a guy asleep in bed who can't be bothered. Go away. I'm tired. I have more important things. He's a father who, when you really, really, really need something, give you a scorpion instead. And Jesus is saying one of the most foundational things we have to get right about prayer. Because it's the foundational thing, honestly, we've got to get right about life, is our image of God. Who are you praying to? When you open up your mouth and speak, believe me, if we can get clear on who God actually is, which is what we are at pains to do again and again from up here through discipleship course, if you can get clear on that, I'm telling you a life of prayer flows from that. A life of actually wanting to go to God. A life of feeling the privilege of going to God. A life of feeling the appropriate audacity of going to God begins to emerge when we get that part right. Let's go to Matthew 
chapter 6. This is the prayer that uh, we'll actually be focused on through the series, or the version of the prayer. They're very, very subtly different in the two Gospels. I'll start at verse 5. <clears throat> this is in a section where Jesus is talking about kind of practical, uh, everyday life, what you can call kind of ethics and, and the right heart posture. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Jesus, as Jesus does, kind of goes after everybody. Don't be like the hypocrites. There he's almost certainly talking about their Jewish religious leaders, saying they love to stand outside. They love for their prayers to be things that people are like, oh, right? Like, this is a danger. Like, the very real, I think that this doesn't apply exactly, right? Like, not a lot of people standing out in the corners praying to be impressed, right? Like, that isn't what our culture tends to be like, those people, right? Like, we've changed a little bit uh, in that way. But this is a thing, right? Like, be, beware when people tell you, like, wow, you just pray so beautifully. Your prayers are awesome. That can do something to the human heart. What he's primarily saying here, though, is, Make sure you're praying for the right reasons, that this is about heart attitude. This is about why am I actually going to God? And this is what he says through, throughout this section, as he says, there is inevitably a reward to any kind of spiritual practice. And we got to be careful because it's, it's, a, it's a binary. It's one or the other. It's, 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 not, it's not a gray area. It's black and white. Why you do and seek communion with me and seek spiritual spiritual practices, you got you to gotta really examine that in your heart. He says it's about fasting. He says it's about being generous toward others. And he says it here about prayer. What's interesting about that is I think most of us, I know that there's a certain kind of personality type that doesn't, but most of us resonate with the idea that we really want people to notice what we do and think we're pretty great. And we, we want... We want approval. Like we, now, some of you are like super prone to this. You're very much, uh, you know, you've heard uh, as you've worked through your own stuff that you're a people pleaser and all that. But there's a version of that in all of us. There's very few kids, except the certain kind of personality type, there's very few kids who don't have some sense of like, yeah, I, I want to do this because I want to make mom and dad happy. And I feel really good when, you know, they applaud my obedience in this way. And Jesus is saying that it's very easy in the life of faith to begin to do these kinds of things like fasting, prayer, being generous toward others, so that at some point, someone might find out and think we're pretty great. And he says, be really careful of the why behind these things. Because again, you can build an entire life of prayer desperate that someone will one day ask you, so, so do you pray? And you go, oh, here it is. Actually, I get up at 5 a.m. I pour myself a cup of coffee, and I spend an hour and a half with the Lord. 
how about you? And there's this little part of you that goes, oh, it was worth it, right? It was all worth it. Or there's a part of you that says, I don't do that, but man, maybe if I did, maybe a motivation to start doing that is so that I can be the kind of person who gets to answer that way when I'm asked. Jesus says you're on dangerous territory there. But here's what he's not saying. You should never want a reward for what you do. You should just be righteous with absolutely no expectation of ever receiving the approval of others. He says, you're just wrong about whose approval you most need. And he says, if you have a life of prayer and you say, I am so rewarded by the presence of God every day. I am so totally, ridiculously blessed. I am so showered with his presence. It is insane that a little bit of effort every day just going before him means that I actually get God. And it is so rewarding. And it is so what gets me back to the table, even when I stop doing it for a little while, is I'm just so thirsty for that feeling of being with God again. God goes, now you're on to something. And if you don't have a life of prayer and you start it because you say, man, I've never experienced God that way. And I've never actually had a sense of that interaction where God draws near when I pursue and seek him. Jesus says, you're onto something. See, we're allowed to want a reward. We were created for that commendation. We were created for that approval. It's just that it's misdirected toward people, toward creatures when it was actually always meant to be pointed toward the creator. Because did you notice? I I think that some of us would be like, Jesus, that sounds like works righteousness. When he says, some of you are like, I don't know what that means. You're not the kind of person that would say that. Is he says, your father who is in secret will reward you. He will reward you. Now, again, here's what's so important. We talked about this even last week is, right? Like we love to define what the reward is. But what we have to realize is that God's reward is always far superior. It far outmatches. It's above, right? Like what we make of a verse, like God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, is we say, God might give me $10. I can't imagine God giving me a million dollars. It's like, no, God is like, you want $10? I'll give you peace and everlasting joy through poverty. That's immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. I can make you okay with the hardest things in your life. That's my reward. And you're out here asking for whatever, a nicer middle-class life. He says, a miserably more than you can ask. Your imagination isn't big enough for what happens when you put yourself under my care, when you cry out for my provision and nearness in your life. Don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What do you think that means? Read it again. Hot take. I think it means what it says. I think it's saying the amount of words and the duration of your prayers are not the primary factor in whether they are responded to. It's not the most important thing. And I do think that in certain streams of Christianity, there has been like a weird overlooking of this very clear teaching of Jesus. 
to where we wear like a badge how many words and how long we can remain in prayer. And Jesus is saying, it's not the thing that matters most. What actually matters most is that your heart posture be what it needs to be. And the heart posture that it needs to be is defined by him saying, do do you see what, what the very next thing he says is? Pray then like this. If it's not about amount of words, if it's not about duration of prayer, then what is it about? It's about quality over quantity, we might say. It's about heart posture over just sheer creativity and ability to talk for a really long time. And he's saying, the posture that I need you to be in is defined by these simple lines that I'm about to give you. This is where our understanding of what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer, yes, is something that we should literally pray. I think that that has been uh, evidenced by church history for for 2,000 years, is it's a beautiful prayer to actually pray. And we're going to get really used to praying it together during our gatherings, which I'm really excited about. But it's also a model for prayer. It's also something that we can use, and, and this is how I've even used the Lord's Prayer in the last little bit here to say, our Father who art in heaven, what does that bring to mind? To allow it to stir us. Because if this is, if, if this is the, uh, the appropriate posture of prayer, we need to let that wash over us. The thing that anyone notices, I would say, when they first come to the Lord's Prayer is that it takes a really long time relative to the duration of the prayer for us to get to Jesus is what I need. And then it doesn't even give us necessarily license to get super specific with that. It defines for it what we need. It says you need daily bread. But that comes after... Our Father, who art in heaven, how be thy name. Kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we get to the part. Give us this day, oh, this is my list, daily bread, right? And we'll talk about how so much of the prayer is meant to challenge how we normally, not just in prayer, right? Like I don't want you to hear this whole series as, as about this, this one part of our lives. It's just how we tend to approach God. We think of God as the one who when not, we have no other way to procure what we want in our lives. Well, this is the time that I finally go to God. And it's challenging not just that orientation of prayer, it's challenging that orientation of our lives. Only thing I'd say about what follows the prayer here is that he doubles down on the forgiveness part, which we will spend two weeks talking through. I don't know that I ever noticed this. Um, it's probably sectioned out the Lord's Prayer itself. Check out verse 14, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'll leave that to those couple of weeks to preach. Forgiveness is clearly here at the heart of this prayer. And it's clearly at the heart of the life of a follower of Jesus. We'll talk about why and how and all those things. But it's so interesting. The prayer is pretty clear. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And then he's like, in case you didn't catch that, that whole forgiveness thing, really, 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 really important. I just wanted to show you that. That's these prayers in their context. Let's read the prayer now. I know you still wanted to. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. By the way, that's where your debtors' transgressions or trespasses thing comes in, right? Like some of you grew up with debt, 
and we grow up with trespasses, changes it in these few verses. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's just so much here. Um, how do I not preach nine weeks of sermon uh, now? Here's what I mean. Uh, let me say this. Here's what I mean by model of prayer. This was helpful to me, this, this little analogy, this little word picture, is there's actually been in church history this movement against using the Lord's Prayer and saying it for fear that it bec- could become ritualistic, for fear that it could completely sap its meaning, which, which absolutely is a thing. But I read something this week that I was like, oh, that's, that's a helpful way of conceiving of why the Lord's Prayer does have a place in terms of how we memorize it. Is a person compared it to on uh, any given holiday, but especially, let's say, Valentine's Day, what do most of us give our, our romantic partner? Yeah, you give them a card, right? And for most of us, that card is not in, uh, like a, a blank card. Some of y'all are overachievers, and you're like, my words are more beautiful than Hallmark's. But most of us rely on Hallmark, right? Like, most of us believe that there's something about someone who spends all of their time trying to come up with what's the right thing for a husband to say to his wife on Valentine's Day, that all of that time and energy that they've spent is probably superior to my four minutes before I go home from work on that day, right? Like, um, is you're relying on the words and sentiments of, of someone else. But, these, but there's a mutual acknowledgement between you and that person, or say you bought a birthday card for something. There's an acknowledgement that just because these aren't your words, that doesn't mean that they don't express your heart. In fact, oftentimes those words help us express what is otherwise inexpressible within us. I like that image of the Lord's Prayer. It's like pulling out that card and saying, that's right. This is, this is the kind of posture, this is the kind of way I want to relate to God. And so God's not going to be like, using my prayer, you plagiarizer, right? Like, God's going to understand there's a mutual agreement. This prayer was given to help me have that posture and to align my prayers in the way that he wants them to be aligned. And so the prayer begins, our Father who is in heaven. I love uh, uh, Justo Gonzalez, great, great biblical scholar and actually church historian is uh, many people have written books on the Lord's Prayer, and they go chapter and line by line. He writes a whole chapter on our, (laughs) the first word, because it's meant to give us pause. Do you remember what, seven minutes ago, when I said what what, uh, Jesus teaches about prayer? He says, don't do it in public. What? Do it in private. Do it alone. So you're alone is the assumption of the context, especially in Matthew 6. And the first thing you say is our. Like, who? It's just me. Why is this not... My Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. And forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Right? Like, isn't it? I don't know that you, I don't know that most of us have ever really seen that. Why this collective What is that, a first-person plural? Why we, our? I love what Husto himself says about this. He says, thus, when we pray our, emphasis on our, Father, we are not praying alone even when we pray in private. In hundreds of different languages, 
in tall steepled churches and in small chapels with thatched roofs, privately and in the midst of multitudes, this great we who are the body of Christ raise our unanimous prayer, our Father. He's saying when we pray this prayer, we pray with saints through the ages, that cloud of witnesses that we talk about in Hebrews. We're also praying with the global church. And then we're also praying for any brother or sister that we walk closely with, anyone in our church, even if they're not present in that room, we are acknowledging that everything that I am asking for in this prayer, I'm also asking for them. And everything that I'm asking, I'm not asking alone, but I'm joining with a concert of voices across centuries and across the world who are posturing ourselves this way. In a massively individualistic culture, and I am becoming more convinced as an armchair sociologist that the fundamental thing to understand about American culture in our day is how hyper, insanely individualistic we have become. There may be no more radical and countercultural word in this entire prayer than our than to join ourselves with an imperfect people and to say, the only thing that binds me with these people is my shared father, my shared identity as a child of God, our father. Father, uh, I don't want to steal all of Jalen's thunder uh, for next week, uh, right? Father, this is the posture that we take. This is the image of God that we're to have. Is good and gracious and perfect, Good, 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 good Father who knows what we need, who has our best intentions at heart, who wants relationship with us, right? Like if the only thing that my, my boys ever did was come to me with requests, with needs, there would be something lacking, impoverished in our relationship. There is a time to remember that by praying our Father that prayer is supposed to be communion. It's supposed to be enjoying the presence of God. It's supposed to be just, just sitting with him for a little bit, abiding with him to use the biblical language. Our Father who is in heaven, heaven is not way out there beyond space wherever Elon Musk is taking us, right? Like heaven, the idea here is that heaven is the realm within which God rules. In other words, heaven is all around us. Father who is ruling even now as close as my breath is, that's who I'm addressing. Not the God, right? Like we can think our Father who art in heaven is like, my Father who art in heaven, can you hear me from out there, right? It's like this, it, it, it can be this distancing open to this prayer. It's actually supposed to be a closing of the gap by saying that he is in heaven. Because yes, he can't be seen, but because he is in heaven, he is as though, not even as though, he is, he is. There's no metaphor here. He is face to face with us in prayer. Hallowed be thy name, the name of God is not just his literal name, it's his reputation. It's the things that he cares about. It's us committing ourselves to saying, God, the things that you care about, the things that you prioritize, the glory of your name, make these the priority of my life and of this world, which matches perfectly with those next couple lines, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many scholars would say that, that those phrases on earth as it is in heaven are meant to flood the entire prayer to say, Lord, uh, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven, even so far as let your kingdom come uh, in, in guarding us from evil, in forgiving us on earth as it is in heaven, that that pervades the whole prayer, that that's, that that's the central core that goes up and down throughout the prayer. 
coming of God's kingdom is his will done to the four corners of the earth, which is our greatest longing in this world. Give us this day our daily bread. This defines what we actually ask for, and it's daily bread. It's sustenance for this day. Jesus himself so often taught you have enough trouble out ahead of you. Let's talk about today. Let me be your sufficiency today. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's beautiful, though difficult, brutal at times cycle of forgiveness that is supposed to characterize especially the life of the follower of Jesus. We forgive because we've been forgiven, right? We talked about this two weeks ago, that this is a distinctly Christian approach to relationship, a distinctly Christian approach to when we are wounded by others, is to say, I release you from the need to decide how you suffer for what you've done because I've been released from the suffering that I deserve. And I hand you over to God, who is the only true and righteous one who can decide these things. That's what forgiveness is, and it's right here at the heart of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Love these lines. Temptation, that word is this dual word that talks about temptation the way that we hear that, which is a weird thing to pray to God. Because like the letter of James that we talked through explicitly says God doesn't tempt anyone. So it's weird to be like, God, do a thing that you're never going to do. Right? Like, don't do a thing that you've already committed to never do. There it is. Um, God doesn't lead us into temptation. The word here is probably the, uh, or the sense here is probably the, the other sense of that word, which is not temptation so much as, as trials. This is what James does when he says, consider pure joy when you face trials of all kinds. Same word here. James, we tend to translate it trials. Here it's translated temptation. It's probably talking about trials. What's it saying? It's saying, don't lead us into something that's too big for me. Don't lead me into something that is going to cause me to falter in faith. This is the word that's used to talk about what Jesus goes through. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this is his testing. This is his temptation. This is his trial. And it's saying, I can't do what Jesus did. It's the ultimate declaration of humility in this. It's saying what Jesus went through, I'm not capable of doing. And deliver us from evil. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Minoj put a book in my hands called The 3D Gospel uh, that, that he and Bina had read. And um, it's this idea that so often in the West, we narrow the gospel just to the idea of um, our guilt being undone. We're very much like a guilt, righteousness kind of culture, and uh, we can really narrow the gospel, which is utterly and completely true, that we are guilty, unrighteous sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of cleansing, in need of a righteousness external to ourselves. Yea, hallelujah, amen. But there's also other dimensions to the gospel, namely dimensions that speak into shame, honor and shame culture. Some of you from, from more Eastern uh, cultural backgrounds. No, the honor and shame culture, this idea that at the heart of what happens in sin is that shame comes into the human story. We see this in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve uh, fall originally, when those first humans don't actually live into what it means to be in the image of God. What do they do? They hide. They're experiencing shame. They're experiencing exclusion from relationship to God. And so this word, this idea, this reality of shame comes into our story. And what Jesus does, he comes and he covers our shame. He takes that shame. He's cast out so that we can be brought in. Family language is so often uh, core to, to an articulation of the gospel in an honor shame. And then there's actually a third dimension. I love this 3D idea. There's this third way of looking at the gospel that speaks of our powerlessness 
when it comes to sin, our powerlessness when it comes to the enemy's devices for us. And one of the things that the New Testament is at pains to show us is that one of the things that Jesus does is he disarms that which enslaves us. He wins us back. Redemption, that beautiful biblical word, is actually more talking about freedom from this slavery, freedom from bondage and captivity into actually a life of righteousness before him. And this, this gospel is so often in, in what we think of as the global south in, uh, in third world countries as, as they were once known where we see these, these power encounters with the forces of darkness and the gospel comes in and brings light and brings freedom. And many of us in the West think like, oh, it's not a real thing. No, no, it's there in the Bible. It's happening even now. And the gospel is penetrating those places. Here's what I love. You take that 3D gospel and it maps so beautifully onto this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The one who has won us out of our shame and exclusion from our unworthiness has brought us into worthiness such that we can call him Father because he calls us son and daughter. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's at the core of everything. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's that righteousness part. Forgive us, God. We're nothing without your forgiveness. We're nothing without being made right by you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you hear that in there? Free us, Lord. Free us from the powers that wage against us in the spiritual realms. And give us what we actually need. Give us your spirit and give us freedom to walk in a new way in this world. Do you hear the comprehensiveness of this prayer? Last thing that I'll say here is... This prayer is not, though, ultimately about us. There is another sense in which this is the Lord's prayer. And this would be the major note that I would sound. As one scholar puts it, is that the Lord's prayer is a window into Jesus' character and actions before it is any kind of instruction for us. The Lord's prayer is a window into Jesus' character and action before it is instruction for us. You see, what Jesus calls us to pray is only possible because of what Jesus himself has done. In fact, the only reason why we can pray a prayer that itself was on the lips of the perfect human being that we could not be is because he has welcomed us into relationship with himself, that we are, to use the New Testament language, we are in Christ and there, think of how crazy it is. The perfect one, the Messiah, God incarnate, the very son of God says, this is how I pray. And then he says, so can you. What, what in the world gives us the right to think that the way that Jesus himself interacted with his father is something that we have permission to ourselves, that we have access to do? You see, the Lord's Prayer is the Lord's Prayer because he is the one who actually activates it, empowers it, makes it possible. Listen to this beautiful quote by New Testament scholar Wesley Hill. The Lord's Prayer is a portrait of Jesus Christ, the one who addresses God as Father, who sanctifies God's name, who announces and bears God's healing reign, who submits to God. Do you see what he's doing? He's working through the prayer. You see what he's doing? Line by line here. 
uh, who submits to God's will, who gives his flesh as daily bread for the life of the world, who provides for the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross, and thus inducts his followers into a lifestyle of forgiveness, and who ultimately delivers believers from the power of death and the devil. Jesus embodies and enacts the prayer he taught his followers What we're going to do over uh, our time in this series is uh, a couple things that I'm really looking forward to. One is we're going to say the prayer together every week, and we'll choose where we're going to do that, either in the liturgy or, or during or after the teaching. Uh, we're going to do that in just a moment, and I want us to get used to doing that. I want it, I, I want it in, in our memories by the time that we're done with this series. The other thing we're going to do is... Uh, and, and Jalen has done a great job lining up uh, several of you already to do this. And if this is something that you'd be interested in doing, we'd love for you to make that known. Just talk to Jalen. Jalen, wave your hand. Is uh, We're going to hear this prayer in, in many different languages represented in our community. If you're someone who, who speaks another language, we would love for you to, to participate in that, um, to be able to allow us to hear, right? To, to embody that hour at the beginning of this prayer, such that we remember that this is not just a prayer owned by, by us here in the West in 2021. It's a global prayer. It's an ancient prayer. We really believe that by hearing it in that way, we'll get to remember that. Hopefully, it'll sink a little bit deeper for us. In the uh, Episcopal, uh, I don't know if any of you grew up Episcopal, the Episcopal liturgy uh, when the when I think it's a priest in in uh, Episcopal circles, when the priest gets up and invites the people to pray the prayer, he he or she says something like, um, "And now we pray as the Lord taught us to pray, and so and I love this, and so we are bold to pray." Love that. I'm going to say that every week. We are bold to pray. It takes a kind of boldness to pray this prayer. And so would you do something that we don't normally do here? Would you rise and pray as our Lord taught us to pray? And so we are bold to pray and follow what's up here. I know for some of you this is rope, but this is, this is our Jacob's Well version. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This time it feels appropriate. Would you remain standing if you're able and grab the elements for communion? Insofar as the Lord has made it possible for us to pray this prayer, uh, we receive communion.